Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. First, I want to give a quick introduction and thank you to uh, Janie at Accomplice, for whom this wouldn't be possible at all. Hey guys, so good to see so many familiar faces again and have the extended Rise family here. My name is Janie. I'm an investor at Accomplice Ventures. We are an early stage venture fund. We invest in seed and series A stage companies. We're pretty sector agnostic. We'll invest in cybersecurity, infrastructure, application level SaaS, consumer marketplaces, biotech, fintech, robotics. So stuff across the board. We're just pretty snobbish snobby about founders we invest in and uh, we look at companies both on the east coast and the west coast we're headquartered in boston and me and another woman cac work out of this office and we're super happy to have everyone here so thank you so much for coming and big thank you to dick for being here and giving us your words of wisdom today so thank you awesome and thank you yeah Awesome. And thank you, Janie, for being my co-host on this live uh, podcast. So we are lucky enough to have uh, Dick Costello, former, among many other things, Michigan graduate. We have, <laughs> we have a bunch of Michigan graduates uh, in, in the audience today. Entrepreneur, CEO, co-founder of Feedburner, eventually COO and then CEO of Twitter. Uh, you were an investor at, at Index, as well as an angel. And then you started a company, Chorus. And so uh, you've been doing this for the last 30 years. My first question is... 30, yeah, I have been doing it for 30 years. So that's a long time. <laughs> My first question is, how do you choose what you want to spend time on in the next phase of your career? Because in the last three years, you've been trying a bunch of different things out, founding a new company. And being yeah. So I think uh, the short answer to that is I have the um, luxury of flexibility now. And so I'm seizing on that luxury and trying to travel as much as possible. I mean, one of the great things about travel to me is... This is great. I think it's actually my pinned tweet on Twitter. A fiction writer said, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something like, you know, one of the great things about reading fiction is you realize that everybody else in the world out there is a me too. Yeah. And, you know, one of the fantastic things about travel is just go to these places and meet these people and realize, man, I'm like, so, you know, everything for whatever reason, they were born here and I was born there and they're a me too. And, you know, and, and, and then you just, it bridges the distance between the way you think about different cultures and the way you think about things like religion and, and politics. And, you know, when you don't see people, you're like, it's us, it's us and them. And yeah. it's easy to think of them as they're crazy and different. And then when you do see them and you're up close to them, you know, it's amazing. I was in, um, uh, just super shortly. Yeah. I just got back from Tanzania for, for, for uh, a few weeks in the Serengeti, which is, you know, it's incredible. And one of the things I had the good fortune to do was hooked up with this tribe of um, hunter-gatherers called the Hadzabe or the Hudsa um, in the southern Serengeti. They're related to the Khoisan people in the Kalahari. They're truly hunter-gatherers. They're not related to the Nilotic people who came down from Egypt and the Nile. But, you know, there are like 400 of them left in this area, and they speak a version of the Khoisan clicking language. And they're wearing and carrying. They don't have, they don't have farms. They don't grow anything. They don't have cows. They don't have homes. They're wearing everything they own, and they sleep on the ground at night in the bush. They're like, we hung out with them, you know, yeah. all night around this fire. And they're like, hilarious. They're like, you know, and they're asking these questions that when you hear them ask them, you're like, yeah, that must seem totally weird. You know, they're like, <laughs> you're bald and she's got red hair and that dude's got black hair and glasses. Are you guys like all of the same tribe? You know, how did you look? Why do you look that way? Yeah. You know, and then they, and then they asked us how we came over and, you know, did you guys come over in one of those things in the sky? And we said, yeah. And they were like, did you make it? <laughs> And of course, it's a totally reasonable question because yeah. they make everything they own. I was like, no, we're not nearly as competent as you are. And we would die in 10 minutes out here on our own. Um, but, you know, that's yeah. awesome and amazing and fun. They're hilarious. And the mother of the family was like, you know, don't speak her language, but she was like cracking us up all night. So, yeah. so uh, when, when I travel, I see my family in Colombia and I see that some of them have much less than I have and yet are so much happier and it makes me miserable. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's like the other thing about the other thing. I mean, the other thing about going on safari is when you're looking at these animals, like they're got like two, you know, two goals: a get food, b don't don't die before yeah. dawn. And you know, you come back and people are like, "God, Uber search pricing is bullshit." <laughs> you're like, okay, you know, you realize kind of personal problems sometimes yeah. are trivial. 
So how do you think that you're going to spend the next 20 to 30 years? Like what criteria do you, do you um, use to? For sure, I'll continue to travel as much as possible. And I want to keep trying to go to, you know, out of my comfort zone there. So one of the things I did as sort of a New Year's resolution is, you know, spin the globe and pointed to two places on the globe. And if I'd been there before, I knew something about it. I spun again and, you know, until I hit a place I didn't know anything about. And it's like, okay, I got to go to those two places this year. You know, so I'm going to try to get to Suriname and Mauritania this year. Um, I have to because I made a resolution to do it. Um, <laughs> and so that's one thing. And I feel like, you know, the more you get yourself out of your, out of your comfort zone on travel and go places you've never been before, the, the better. And then the second thing is I just want to help people, you know, I'm, I'm going to help people who, who need it. And so one of the things uh, that Adam Bain and I are doing now is I'm just helping CEOs and, and founders of company that are building companies and, you know, we're not taking board seats and uh, we're not sort of leading and pricing rounds on investment. We're just advising companies and we may do it for options or, or invest a little bit. But, you know, Cam- Bill Campbell did that for, for, for us and uh, he was great. And we just want to sort of do that. It's fun to, it's fun to help people and teach people and, and you learn a bunch of different stuff. And one of the other things you learn is I remember Jack Dorsey and I were trying to convince a, an executive, a CEO and, and a big, a big tech CEO in 20, 2011 to join the board of Twitter. And he, di- he didn't do it. But um, we were talking about strategy and, you know, the CEO said, you know, I like to do everything. And, you know, we replied, I think Jack replied, well, you know, Steve Jobs says the biggest part of strategy is, you know, knowing what to say no to. And this person looked at him and said, yeah, well, there's lots of ways to be successful. I like to do everything. You know, my, my team has to talk me out of stuff. And, you know, it's one of the most successful companies in, in, in tech. So um, I just think that's fun. You learn a lot from different people and different ways to lead and uh, be successful. And I think a lot of times people lead by this worked for you over there. So I'm going to tell these people to do it that right. way. And there's lots of different ways to do things. You probably coach a lot of people both as an investor and as an operator, especially when you were CEO of Twitter. What have you enjoyed more, investing or operating, and why? Oh, well, the, the, I mean, I mean, you know, the horror of being an operator, especially a CEO, is you know you wake up every night at three a.m. and like press your head together about the nineteen things that are that you're thinking about or stressing about, and you know the bigger the company is, um, when there's a crisis in the company. It's your crisis too. And, yeah. um, it may seem unrelated to, you know, most of the people in the company, but four people in London, it's a crisis and it's your crisis too. And that's just constant. And there's this constant, like, sort of background noise of that waking up at 3 a.m. And, you know, another CEO called it the dungeon. He's like, God, I woke up at 3 a.m. in the, in the dungeon last night. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, mostly when you're an investor, you're like, well, that seems like a horrible problem. I hope you figure it out, you know, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go get lunch. Um, oh, those passive know, Kakari's got this great table that I reserve in the back every day and I'm going to go hang out over there and have a glass of wine. So I, I, you know, I think it's a lot less deeply stressful, a lot less being, um, being an investor. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about Twitter, which, which was a, seems like a very Speaking calm. Speaking of de- yeah. deeply stressful, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about. Seems like a calm and tranquil yeah. environment with not much drama. Well, first off, what's it like to have a book written about your experience where you didn't write it? <laughs> you didn't sort of authorize. The, you know, one of the great the things about, I, it was fine. I mean, you know, I said this in my, I gave this commencement speech at University of Michigan and, and one of, thank you, thank you. Um, one of the things I was, I said to the students at the speech was, you know, people tell you to like, you know, you got to make an impact in the world and it causes you to try to create this script for yourself. And the problem with that is there's chaos and things go wrong. And, you know, if you're doing what you think you're supposed to do and things go wrong, then you're like, you end up frozen on the stage of your own life wondering like, well, how did, how did this happen to me? You know, and instead, if you're doing what you want to do and you're trying to, you know, you're, you're just doing what you want to do and you do what you love. And then when things go wrong, you become resilient. And the beauty of Twitter was there was always uh, all this drama and, and crazy stuff going on. I remember when I took over as CEO in at the end of 2010, um, there had been two cover articles in like business magazines. I think Fast Company was one. I'm not sure what the other one was. That year with Twitter on the cover and they both featured dead versions of the bird. One had exploded, one had exploded and the other was, it was hanging itself. And I was like, okay, the goal for 2011 is no dead Twitter birds on the cover of magazines. This is the lowest bar possible for PR. But, um, but I mentioned that by way of saying like, we were super resilient because there was, everyone was constantly like, well, that's it for Twitter. And you know, from 2008 to nine to, 
And so every time that happened, we we're like, all right, well, you know, that's the external noise and we got to like just keep our heads down and, and figure it out and we'll be fine. And I think that was awesome, and, you know, as, as, as crazy and dramatic and sometimes horrible as it was, it really teaches you resilience and focus. And, you know, the, the external narrative is, is not the internal narrative and, it's, they've said it before and then we, you know, showed up here and the bird wasn't dead and we were successful and we grew the company uh, three times as much. So when you go through that, it's great because it just teaches you resilience and focus. And, um, you know, I used to show the company people, people who worked at Twitter are listening to this are going to be like, Oh God, here he goes again with that, with that stupid analogy. But I used to show the company this picture of the statue of David, um, in Florence. Michelangelo's David. I said, Michelangelo, uh, during the Renaissance, David was always portrayed as, usually portrayed, I should say, as sort of standing on the, you know, the head of the Goliath after he had slain the giant and cut off his head and the sword is embedded in his head. He's standing on the giant's head and Verrocchio and Donatello all portrayed him this way. And Michelangelo came along and was like, no, I'm going to portray David in that moment when he's got the rock in one hand and the sling over his shoulder in that moment between, I know what I need to do. But I haven't done it yet. And I got to focus and just do it. And that moment between he said conscious choice and decisive action. And I always showed the company that picture and I was like, there's going to be whatever the external noise is. And if you focus and right. we decided we're going to do this, now we got to go do it. Irrespective of what, you know, whatever the Motley Fool says today. You know, great. Yeah. I remember one of my great lessons from Twitter was this like awesome ego lesson. You know, in at the end of 2013, it was like, you know, Dick Costello is the CEO of the year. They had this amazing IPO and the stock is now trading at a bajillion times next year's revenue and, you know, whatever. And then 2014, my daughter texted me at the end of 2014. She's like, hey, dad, I have good news and bad news. I was like, okay, what's the good news? She's like, no, first I want to give you the bad news. I'm like, All right, what's the bad news? She's like, Yahoo Finance says you're one of the five worst CEOs of 2014. I was like, what's the good news? No one reads Yahoo Finance? She was like... She's like, no, the good news is you're, you're number two <laughs> behind a guy in Spain who's in jail. <laughs> I was like, all right, that's, well, that's so, good news. Thanks, Ross. She, you know, my kids keep me, kids are good. Thank you. You, you, you have a lot of credibility when it comes to pursuing your passion. It all work out because you pursued comedy and then yeah. you, I guess, failed at comedy and then became rich as successful. I failed at comedy? Wow. <laughs> you became rich and successful doing something else. And it, I feel like it rings hollow for all the mixtape rappers out there who are, who are still doing their thing. Like, how do you um, yeah. think about that? Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't mean wow, your you failure. you threw me off when you said I failed at comedy. That was really harsh. So I, I graduated for uh, really briefly because um, just to, I had a computer science degree at Michigan, but I decided I want to go take one of these jobs I've got an offer to go do in like New York or wherever. I'm going to go to Chicago and improvise and try to get into Second City and try to get on SNL. Sorry, live. Sorry, and that was kind of the the path at the time in the in mid '80s to get to Saturday Night Live. So I got to a Second City, and you know, um, Steve Carell and I were in the same start group there. Like, showed up the same first day. Uh, Tina Fey and Rachel Dratch, and you know, Adam McKay. I know Adam. The guys who started Upright Citizen Brigade or Citizen Brigade are all friends of mine. And that was just awesome, you know. And then eventually the auditions come around for shows and like, you know, years later, um, when you're good enough to uh, get invited to them. And, you know, I didn't get SNL, but a lot of people didn't get it. You know, yeah. Tina auditioned for uh, SNL and didn't get hired. Adam McKay, the director of The Big Short and others, got hired, uh, became the head writer a year later, and was like, I'm hiring Tina to come onto the writing team. And that's how Tina got on Saturday Night Live. And Steve Carell auditioned it, didn't get it. And, you know, everyone knows who he is now. Right. So some of those folks just stuck with it because they wanted to do it. And I was like, I'm tired of eating, you know, noodles out of a can, and I'm going to go get a real job and right. put my uh, CS degree back to work. But you felt like you scratched your itch. Well, more than they, I did it for years and years and years. It was more than yeah. scratching the itch. And you, you just use that stuff. I mean, yeah. like improv is, was probably the best lesson learned for being a, uh, you know, running a company and, and just being a leader in general for, for two reasons. One, you know, when you're improvising on stage, the sort of the thing they, uh, you know, the thing that you learn is no matter what someone else says on stage, that's now true. You know, you got to accept that and run with it. They call it yes and. So, you know, don't say no, that's not true or no, but or yes, but. Uh, everything is, I take that, I accept it as the truth, and I run with it. And, you know, I think a lot of times leaders and managers and CEOs, you know, someone in the company will work up the guts. Like, imagine you're in a 4,000-person company like Twitter. It's got 38 offices around the world. You know, you're new at the company, and you work up the guts to go tell a VP or, you know, 
a director or, you know, God forbid the CEO, like this thing that you perceive to be true that like, why is no one saying this? And then they look at you and go, that's not true. You know, like you just, I, one of the, my biggest management, you know, criteria, I would say, or, or things that I tried to drill into people was if your team perceives something to be true, you need to like, that's true. And you need to deal with that and denying it, denying there is a problem or ignoring it and embracing the status quo is just creating misery for everybody because they believe it to be true. And they just think you're, you know, you're in denial and don't see it. So I always tried to like drill that into people. Like if people think this is true, there's something that's their truth. And we need to figure out why they think that if we believe otherwise. I I think that's important. That was a great lesson learned from improv. And then of course the, just the, the yes, you know, the bias to, we had this thing at Twitter called bias to yes. Like assume the answer is yes. And you know, Communicate what you're doing, but assume the answer is yes and don't wait around for permission or, you know, um, you know, ask for permission. Just go and do it. Um, I think that stuff's important. In your Michigan speech, you, your advice for young people was about taking risks, especially early yeah. in your, early in that career. So what was, breaking, yeah. So was yeah. breaking into comedy the biggest risk you took or what's been the biggest risk of the I last few years? I always trying to take them. I had these great job offers after Michigan and I end up like working in the coat room of this nightclub in Chicago, hanging coats up so I could like perform at Second City. Yeah. I remember this guy in my computer science class at Michigan came into the nightclub on one Saturday at like midnight or something with a bunch of friends and he's in a suit and like hands his coat over and I took it. He looks at me and he's, you know, makes eye contact with me. He's like, what happened? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, I'm, you know, <laughs> I was like, I was like, why are you there? Um, you know, it's like, have you found him since? <laughs> I haven't. I had him killed later on. Much later. <laughs> um, I just always, every time I've taken a big risk, like I was like, great. It always like has been, I've been happy. I did it like tons of, you know, I never had ego about, Oh, if I do this and it doesn't work, that will like make me look bad. Mm-hmm. Or, I can't go do something new from scratch after Twitter because now I've got to go do X, Y, Z. I never have had any of that. Um, I've always thought taking big risks, it's the way I think about travel. Going somewhere I've never gone before and taking myself out of my comfort zone is always fun and um, you learn a ton from it and you grow as a person and all of those are good. Yeah. So was starting a company in the fitness space that sort of a risk after Twitter? Oh, was starting, yeah, starting a company in the fitness space. Well, like lots of the digital fitness stuff doesn't work, but I had this hypothesis that it's social accountability that prevents this stuff from working. And social accountability is one of the ways mm. people actually get to developing habits. Um, you know, and to make a, a very long story short, it, it just didn't work. People had, there's this thing in behavioral psychology called abstinence violation effect, which is that if you do something, you don't do something you're supposed to do, um, like, you know, not have a drink and then you have a drink and there's a group that's created specifically that you've joined and gone out of your way to join, like Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, for the express purpose of getting you to do this thing you're supposed to do and you violate it, abstinence violation effect, the effective response is not to go to the group for help. It's to you know, hide and feel shame and hide. And that's what people do in a lot of these digital fitness apps and what they did a lot on ours. So we kind of came to the conclusion that banging our heads against the wall and, you know, lots of hardwired human psychology wasn't going to solve the problem. Do you become jaded when you create something that tries to motivate people and you're like, no, because, you know, you've like learned a lot and then you're like, okay, well, that was, you know, we learned this interesting thing about behavioral psychology Mm -hmm. that I never knew before. And that's, super interesting and fascinating way to think about people because they will go out of their way to create these structures for the express purpose of getting me to do this thing I I I don't think I'll otherwise do and then when they don't do it they're like you know delete delete the no- turn off notifications and hide it's just interesting that that happens and yet people do it over and over again do you have another company in you I'm like much more interested now in helping the CEOs I'm helping and having fun and, and traveling as much as I'm traveling. And, you know, when you're running one thing, it's so myopic. Like, yeah. you know, we're in Twitter for six years and CEO for five of them. You're thinking about Twitter and your team and that thing, like always, yeah. you know, always. And being able to not have that myopia and, and, and learn a bunch of different things and think about different things and um, learn new, new kinds of, you know, the different ways different people lead is, is, more fun. And going back to Twitter days for a second, some people look back at the company and say, well, there's a few things. One is, you, we just talked about how you had to deal with a lot of adversity or a lot of people 
shitting on you, basically. <laughs> what advice do you have for other people who are struggling with caring too much about what other people say about them or external perception? Oh, man. I mean, you can't, you just can't. Look, look, but if you tactically, get, practically. If you, I mean, you know, if you start paying attention to what other people are, are saying about you or what other people think about you, you're screwed. You know, like managing or leading by paying attention to that stuff is, you know, you want to like, listen to people you trust and accept their feedback. And like I said earlier, like acknowledge if they say something like, hey, I'm giving you this honest feedback, like, okay, this person believes that. But people outside, you know, just random outside voices or whatever, saying whatever whatever they want to say, there's a reason they want to say it. They all, Everyone has their own agenda. They're trying to, you know, they don't understand the context for what's going on in the organization and those kinds of things. I tended to almost always just make sure we were honest and giving each other inside the organization feedback. And that, that goes for, I know anyone in the company could talk to me and come up and tell me what they thought and like give me a hard time even and about a decision that was made. You know, remember we'd have these all hand meetings and, you know, there was a, there were a couple specific engineers who were particularly adept at giving me shit about decisions <laughs> that we made. And I always made it like tried to make it clear to the company. I'm totally fine with that. I'm going to not only going to not ignore this person or wave them away. I'm going to, maybe spend a little bit extra time providing context around a decision that was made and why it was made. And then also make it clear after the meeting's over that I'm going to go up to that person and, you know, talk to them and say hi to them. Uh, just because as you get farther and farther away from the newer people in the company, you have to make it extra clear to them that you want to hear the truth. You know, I remember Peter Chernin, who was on my board and was the COO at News Corp for, you know, years and years and made two biggest grossing movies of all time, Avatar and Titanic, or at least they were until a couple of years ago. Someone at, at this leadership conference said, how do you find out when good things happen in the global organization? And Peter laughed and was like, trust me, the good news finds its way to me right away with 15 people taking credit for it. You know, it's the bad news. You got to make it okay for people to, you know, you can't punish people for telling you the truth. It's mistakes you see all the time. People get in trouble for, Hey, we screwed this thing up and then they get in trouble for it. Don't punish people for making mistakes. It's, yeah. you know, it's the job of leadership to correct mistakes quickly when they happen, not prevent mistakes from happening. What's Stuff's going to go wrong. What, speaking of, what's, what's a moment in Twitter history where you're like, fuck this. This is just too much. And then you regained inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yeah, I'd say like Tuesday at 7.30 a.m. Um, I mean, you know. It's but like, deeply. No, I don't. I don't. I decided to leave at the end of 20, because I mentally decided to leave at the end of 2014 and told the lead independent director, Peter Curry, at the very first, I think it was the very first board meeting in 2015, if I remember correctly, in January, like, hey, this is, you know, I'm going to, this is my sixth year. Like, I, you know, took this thing from zero in revenue to two plus billion dollars a year in revenue and one office to 36 offices and it's $30 billion public company. Like, it's time for me to move on after this year. And I don't care if it's, you know, tomorrow or December 30th, but like you should start having discussions about how you want to, with the board about how you want to deal with it. Before that, it was, you know, never, I never thought, never mm -hmm. once thought, you know, that's it, I'm out, ever. And what would the 2019 Coach Costello tell the 2013, 2014 Nick Costello? Oh man, are you like, are so many things. I don't even know, where, I don't <laughs> even know where to start. One of the things that's interesting is that when you become a public company, you, for the first time, I, I don't know why I didn't understand this. It's sort of obvious in hindsight, but it, but it didn't. One of the things that's interesting when you become a public company, especially one where, you know, we priced the IPO at $26 a share on whatever day it was, November, November 4th. Going into the IPO, we had on the cover of our, of our filing, $16 to $19 a share. At the end of day one is at $47 a share. And then a month later, right before Christmas, it was $70 a share. You know, one of the things I didn't realize is, when you're a public company, you have people who are investors in your stock who are on the other side of the long investors. When you're a private company, you don't have anybody who is an investor in the stock mm -hmm. who wants it to blow up. They're all on your side. And so when you're public and there are people on TV going, saying stuff and you're like, that's not right. Where's that coming from? And then you realize, oh, there are people on the short side of the stock right now. I don't know why I didn't, that wasn't like sort of obvious to me, but it wasn't. And that's an interesting lesson learned probably for lots of CEOs, you know, within six months of being public, there are people on the other side of the trade from you and everybody in your company. So the political and media landscape in the US has been super dysfunctional, to say the least, over the last few years. And I think what we see on Twitter is really like very intense microcosm reflecting that landscape. 
Can you speak a little bit about what you see Twitter's role have has been over the last few years, especially in the last election, and what you how you see that role evolving in 2020 and going forward? Yeah, well, that's not my problem anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, I'll just speak generally because you know I'll say standpoint. I'll say something, and then you know Jack's going to go, "Thanks a lot, asshole." Right. But um, you know. It's sort of like it's interesting with the with the advent of way back in the way back in the whatever it was late eighties nineties with the advent of cable news and 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 some of these more popular radio talk shows it became um the case that hey just you know stating objective facts that have been proven are no longer are not an effective way to build an audience from nothing, an effective way to build an audience from nothing. You know, they had three networks before that, essentially, CBS, NBC, and ABC, who had these big audiences, and they could, you know, give you the straight facts and evening news, and you were like, okay, great. Building an audience from nothing, a great way to do it in cable news and radio talk shows was have a really, 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 you know, strong point of view, and it's us versus them, Mm. and you impute perspective and point of view from anything anyone else who th- thinks other than you do, and uh, you create a narrative around that, including like, you know, name calling and and tribalism and and everything else, and uh, you know, and there's lots and lots of examples of that. I think some of this stuff, like social media, for example, Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and and everything else, is just sort of the the next order of magnitude. You know more of that. So, like I you know when I said earlier, the great thing about travel is you learn everyone else out in there in the in the world is a me too. You don't get that, you know, sitting at home and, you know, looking at a reply from someone you've never met before and don't know anything about who disagrees with you. Mm. And, you know, you're more likely to just yell at them and then try to think about, well, I wonder what Bob is going through today in, you know, the Philippines that would cause him to say, you know, I'm crazy. Um, Must be having a, you know, must be stuck in traffic and it's just horrible. Let me look up the weather. Oh, it's 96 degrees and humid in, you know, Manila. No wonder he's in a bad mood. You know, no one does that. They just like yell back at each other. So I think that that's an amplification of this stuff that's been happening in an effort to build an audience and create a following. And you just have more and more and more of the sus versus them. And I'm not sure what the right answer is to the way around it. And who, in your opinion, has the most interesting, fascinating or entertaining Twitter account? And you cannot... Say Trump. <laughs> Who else? Uh, no, I don't. I don't like. I don't think about it that way. I mean, I know it's a cop out, but I always like when, especially when I was CEO. I did it a lot more when I was CEO. I tried to always like unfollow giant swaths of people and then mm. follow a whole new giant swaths of people. Just learn all this crazy, interesting stuff. What, I think what, a lot of the. I think a lot of fiction writers are great mm. at Twitter. Quote is Margaret about At Margaret Atwood and. And a great dismal, you know, the science fiction writer. And um, lots of uh, there are lots of great authors on Twitter, actually. Lots and lots of great authors on Twitter. And they use it quite a bit, not just journalists, but fiction writers. I think sometimes those are some of the some of my favorite accounts. But I would think I think of them as a collection, not as, you know, one one or two accounts. I think the quote you were talking about at the beginning was about learning empathy by reading fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah you learn that everybody else is me out there, yeah. too. Yeah, that's for sure true. I think one of the great things that great leaders do is they're empathetic. You know, they're not, they don't do things like, well, I always had a hard time trying to describe this to my managers. Like your job isn't to go into a hard discussion and be sympathetic, by which I meant, mm. don't go into the discussion and go, oh man, I know how you feel. Dick's such a jerk. He did the same thing to me last week. I'm totally with you. You know, that's not your job. Your job is, and your job is also not to go like, hey, just shut up and do that. You know, you can be empathetic and understand, like, I understand this is our decision. Especially given the fact that, you know, you worked on XYZ for several months and I totally get it. And you were here till 2 a.m. that other night. But, you know, we all got to get on the same page and go do XYZ, whatever decision's been made. I think that empathetic leaders are great leaders and people who try to, you know, tell people what they want to hear or or the opposite or just like, I'm just going to deal with this by being a jerk and not trying to figure out what this person, you know, is thinking about or try to understand the way they're feeling is equally horrible. And there are plenty of examples of all of those. And it is one thing to uh, have that empathy when someone sort of trolls you on Twitter. It's another for when someone wrongs you personally and that, you know, that costs you a, a lot of money or a lot of time or, or something else. And if all you know of the Twitter story is what you read from Hatching Twitter, you might think, oh man, there was like a lot of conflict uh, among these people. So, so how have you learned to sort of see the best in people or forgive people when they mess up in ways that, that are That's a great question. I mean, one of the, th- I, I, I'll say two things about that question. 
The first thing I'll say is when there's a particular avalanche of criticism about somebody in the Valley, in the media, I more often than not go out of my way to spend more time with that person. Mm. I mean, if you look through the list of people who are sort of like, and you know, that's why so-and-so is horrible. Those are the kind of people you'll find me hanging out with from when they're going through that. Just because I've regularly saw, like, that's not true. You know, that's not even remotely true. And not about just me, about whatever. I'm always in the, hey, this person's got some, you know, probably isn't evil and has some reason they went and did X, Y, Z and thinks these things. And we sh I should go figure out why, what that is or spend some time with them. Because a lot of people will just be like, you know, run to the other side of the boat and not talk to them. So I do that, I think, a lot more than other people. And the second thing I'll say about that's your even more explicitly about the book Hatching Twitter is I'm Nick Bilton, the author of Hatching Twitter, has this great story that I'll try to make as short as possible. It's like, okay, I'm I'm researching a thing that happened, you know, two years before I got to Twitter in 2007. It says, I go to talk to, you know, there are two people involved intimately in the story that had discussion. I go to person one and say, tell me what happened that day. And person one says, I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, we walked into Whole Foods and we had soup and I said X, Y, Z to this person and, you know, they paused while they were bringing the spoon to their lips and, and, you know, and, and, and there was silence for 10 seconds and it was horrible. And then, you know, Nick, several months later, goes and interviews person two. And he's like, tell me what happened that day. And person two says, I remember it like it was yesterday. We walked into Europe Buena Park. It was a beautiful sunny day. We sat there on the park bench. You know, I did most of the talking, you know. You know, I, I looked at person number one and, you know, a completely different context about totally unimportant details. And that's just a great, like, these two people have these unimportant details in their mind, one of which is completely wrong, but it's there. And anyone who tells them otherwise, they're going to go, that's not what happened. I think that's true of, like, everything. Yeah. <laughs> and you just have to, you know, you have to understand that and appreciate it. All by way of saying, by the way, those are two people who were at that conversation. Yeah. Now imagine somebody writing an article about it yeah. who didn't talk to either yeah. of those two people yeah. who lives in another country two years later. Like, okay, right. it's probably not exactly what happened. So yeah. I just think that generally about things I read. Yeah. Right. Let me ask you another specific question. When you've been through a conflict with someone you've known for such a long time and there's so much sort of tension there, when do you sort of let sleeping dogs lie and sort of just- I try to do that like ASAP. Yeah. I don't have, I don't hold grudges. I just don't. I mean, a, yeah. like, what's the point? Like, who cares? You know, yeah. like, I think, man, and there are some people, again, in this industry, we all know them who are like, man, that person is a class A grudge holder. That happened like eight years ago, <laughs> you know? I'm like, so what? You know, yeah. like- there's a million other things to do. And like people worry about yes. weird, crazy stuff. It's all ego, you know? Yeah. It's because yeah. they think I was the king and I was supposed to be in that throne there. And, you know, and, and that person kicked me out of the throne. And that's because they're horrible. And, you know, and I'm supposed to be there, not here. And so I'm going to get that person. <laughs> it was like, who cares? Yeah. A couple last questions for Janie and I. One is uh, when you write your book, your memoir, uh, Yes <laughs> And. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thanks. I've been, well, that's but when that's been what's stopping me. Now I'm ready to go. Yes. What's something non-obvious that's going to be uh, in that book that we may not know from from following you and, and following your work in your approach to oh. management or or coaching? Gosh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Ask, uh, the audience can ask me questions, and I'll, sure. while we're doing, I'll multitask and think sure. about an answer to that question. What's going on? Be okay. I have one question on on coaching. What is the most common mistake you now see entrepreneurs make and what kind of advice do you give them to mitigate or manage those mistakes? I mean, there's so many. I think the one thing that you see over and over again is especially maybe like Series A, early B entrepreneurs mm -hmm. or CEOs make is, boy, once I get so in this, this role in here, then we're set. You know, then I'm going to be all good and I'll finally have everything exactly the way it's supposed to be and it'll be off to the races. And just like, it's always the next, you know, right. you do see that a lot. Like, just need to get a VP of marketing and then we're done. Like, you're not done. Like three months later, two months later, a month later, there's four more things, you know, and you have to migrate from, you know, fighting forest fires as an entrepreneur to forestry management. I think a lot of people don't make that transition. And so as a result, they, they tell people what to do instead of bringing people in who can own the problem and own the solution and push decisions down the stack. 
they scale by trying to work harder and make more decisions and they end up running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And you know, people don't want to be told what to do because then they don't feel any ownership of the problem. So I think that's probably probably the biggest mistake is, you know, once I get this thing in here, then I'm set and I can, you know, go to this and this and this and just have to bring in people who can, you know, what you want as a CEO is to not know some problem happened and there was a solution for it. Like those were great. When those things happen, you're like, hallelujah, you know, that's like, you brought in people who can identify the problem and fix it without coming to you and asking for permission and move forward and own the solution. That's when you know you're off to the races. That's probably the biggest mistake. That and thinking it's only going to be hard until I get to here and then I'm, and then I'm great. It's, I had this CEO of, he's going into, I guess it was CEO. He's going into the, a YC, the, the most recent YC class and I saw him at this coffee shop or he saw me at this coffee shop rather and he came up to me. He's like, Hey, can I ask you one question? It's like, yeah, I'm going to the next YC class. What's one sentence of advice you have for me? I was like, it's always hard. Like, as long as you don't forget that, you'll be fine. Because you'll be like, well, Dick said, it's always hard. As you think about your management style, one thing I've noticed about you is that you're unusually friendly and kind. And maybe it's because you never managed me. But how do you think about the balance between being buddy-buddy and being someone's friend and also Uh, having a high bar? Thank you. You can't manage by trying to be liked. If you manage by by trying to be liked... I'm telling you, you see it all the time. You're just going to create misery for your team and nobody's going to trust you. Because when you manage by trying to be liked, you tell people what they want to hear. You use sympathy as a like, yeah, Dick's crazy. And, you know, he's wanted by the campus police and he constantly is making capricious and arbitrary decisions. And I know exactly what you feel like. And, you know, that just creates misery and people end up not trusting you. If you're honest with people and you give them feedback and you're not a jerk, you know, nobody wants to work for a jerk. You don't have to say... Just do it. You know, it's like you can say, look, I get why you think this is like a horrible. You were here till 2 a.m. four weeks in a row. And now, you know, XYG project is being canceled. I get it. But, you know, that's where we are. And I can pretend it's not true or tell you something you want to hear. But uh, we have to figure out what we're going to do as next steps and, you know, and, and blah, 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 whatever. And I think when you do that, that's where trust gets built. And then people respect you and, um, you know, they end up appreciating that anyway. Oh, you always hear from people when you ask. Tell me about a great manager you work for. Tell me about somebody you work for that was a great leader. You always hear, oh, man, this person, like, you know, I hated it at the time because they were, like, telling me X, Y, Z and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted this other thing. But, you know, they were right. And I learned a lot from that. And, you know, and they gave me ownership of things and didn't, you know, micromanage me and let me identify problems and solutions. And then didn't do things later. Like, well, you wanted to do it. You know, like, those are great. Those kinds of people are great leaders. And you can do that. And you don't have to be a jerk to do that. You can be right. forthright and kind and friendly. This is going to sound silly, but one thing I've inspired by, by you is that you use a lot of exclamation points in your emails. You're yourself. And I've got once gotten that feedback not to use exclamation points in, in emails. You know what? People are stupid. Here's the deal. People are constantly like, you know, this is one of the things I hate about these books. Like, don't do this. Like, that's because it worked for you at Google and Google has... 89% margins on AdWords. So whatever you decided was going to work. You could say like only hire salespeople that are shorter than five foot four. Look, it worked for us at Google. Like, okay, well, you guys had AdWords. That was going to work. I'm picking on Google, but you know, people have these success biases of, of whatever happened at company X. And they're like, see, that's why you should never use exclamation points in your emails. I think you should use more exclamation points in your emails. <laughs> With that, awesome. we'll open it up to, to questions. We'll, we'll take two at a time. So, where, where do you think improv doesn't apply when you're running a business? Uh, okay. where, where should you not be yes-ending or where should you be giving more thought or going with your fourth or fifth thought instead of your third thought? Well, in improv, you're meant to go right away with like whatever the first thing that comes out is your take that and run with it. Obviously, there are lots of instances when you're leading and managing where you need to get be super careful. You know, there, there are places you need to move fast and then there are pretty clearly instances where, hmm, I need to get a lot more feedback on this before we make a decision because this is sort of an existential next step and let's not go with our, you know, instinct and hit the, you know, the Jeopardy buzzer and say, you know, the, the answer, uh, let's figure out what we really want to do here and be thoughtful about it. And I, and I will say, um, if I had to go back to, you know, Twitter 2010 when I first took over, my instincts were, okay, B, you know, and move on and C, let's go. We got to move faster. And so there were times when I think I was probably impetuous about early decisions where, you know, all right, people are not all on the same page on here and I'm going to bring some people along irrespective of what we decide. I got to get some feedback from everybody else so that I can do that irrespective of what the decision is. 
great. Uh, thank you for, for being here. It's been great. Uh, question for you. We have not seen any breakout social media companies over the last few years. Um, will we see something in the future? What might it be around? What might be the use case? Um, curious for any thoughts you have on that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if my short answer is yes. And I think that people will use what they don't appreciate about the you know, it'll be something that measures success based on a metric that the current platforms can't measure success on, right? So if you think about, I'm, I'm generalizing dramatically here, but if you think about the current platforms measuring success as engagement, maybe a future platform will be, hey, this is going to work great if you're on once, log in once a week and there are four things you look at and you don't come on again till next week. That will be the great way to use this thing. Something that kind of comes at success metrics on an orthogonal, you know, from, from an orthogonal vector will be something that works great. And the existing players won't be able to compete with it because they'll be like, well, we can't do that because we want people on a lot and doing lots of things and, you know, engaging with lots of stuff. I think those are well documented and, <laughs> and, and frequently reported on. Um, no, well, I think hopefully you've learned my answer now is no. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, it's too easy to be an abuser. On, I mean, I was saying this when I was CEO of Twitter. It's easier to be an abuser on the network than it is to be abused on the networks, any of them. And there needs to be a cost, a sort of a bar to engage and figuring out what that is while maintaining you know, hey, we want everyone in the world to have a voice is a hard problem. You know, so there have been lots of suggestions like, look, you have to be able to, you have to have verified your phone number before you can write a reply on Twitter. And if you haven't done that, you can't write a reply. Well, okay, there are lots of people who come forward and say, here are all these people who have very interesting things to say in the world, very interesting things to say in the world who don't have a phone. Okay, well, use Google Voice. Okay, well, here's the other problem. You, you get the idea. So all of these things create these, well, yeah, but then this other, this other issue happens. I think that, 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 that's the main issue. It's too easy to be either a disinformation spreader or an abuser. I'm not speaking about one network and I'm speaking about all of them on these networks and too hard or the cost rather is high to try to eradicate those things. It, the economics are inverted. Um, and I, again, that's something I've said since I was the, uh, since I was the CEO of Twitter. Jay's in crypto. So do you think that a decentralized social network will? Well, I would love to see, I would love to see some sort of truly decentralized identity that could be, and, and true identity where you could, a verifiable identity that you could use as sort of a, a next generation way of building these things. Like you can imagine a decentralized, a blockchain based uh, LinkedIn where the resume is created by other nodes on the network for individuals that would be awesome. And then you're not, you know, I'll get calls, um, reference calls from CEOs and investors and, Tell me about, you know, person X, like never heard the name before. Oh, how is that possible? They ran mobile engineering at Twitter from 2011 to 2015. Like, nope. You know, what? no, they did. It says right here on LinkedIn and they're applying for this job. And like, that is not a person I've, that doesn't exist. And I don't think I've ever heard of before, you know, and uh, they certainly did not run mobile engineering at Twitter. Um, so anyway, something like that would be great. And you can imagine all sorts of ways that could be used then as the basis for, you know, identity on on other platforms. Um, thanks for being here. Um, you're, you're from Michigan a couple of months from Michigan here as well. Um, and thanks for your support of the Michigan ecosystem. What is it, can you comment, but looking ahead, what is it that some folks here in the Valley underestimate about the Michigan and sort of the, the other, you know, ecosystems around the country and vice versa? This won't come as a surprise based on everything I've said. I think that people here tend to underestimate the capabilities and abilities of people who didn't go to Stanford, you know, mm. or Harvard or whatever. Like, it's just in my mind, like, you know, I, I think that's frequently underestimated and across the board out here. And I think that people, the thing that people underestimate in places like, Austin and, and, and Michigan and, you know, wherever else is the incredible power of the network effects of the investment, education and entrepreneur community out here is mm. like, people always say like, well, we'll start a, you know, an accelerator at the University of Michigan and then we'll be able to do everything. Like, nope, there's like 50 investor nodes and, you know, X 
hundred entrepreneur nodes and that vortex that gets going is super hard to replicate anywhere else, despite the fact that you, you know, whatever they want, whatever they want to call these things in these other cities that they create one of, you know, it's amazing. Um, there's nothing like it. And unless you're out here, you don't really see it. What Please. private network or community do you find the most value in? Oh man, Question. that's really Great hard. Question. This is one of those things that will come to me after we leave and I'll be like, oh, I should have said blah. Should we ask another question? Maybe no, but I, have, I remember the answer. I'll, I'm going to go. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to answer your other question. Um, you know, what's the thing we don't. Yeah. One of the things that, that you hear all the time as an entrepreneur, and by the way, it's reinforced by executives and, and CEOs who say this on stage is, you know, here at Company X, we only hire A players because B players hire C players and C players hire, you know, we only hire A players. Let me tell you something. You can interview, so you think, okay, like we're going to have a really rigorous interview process, so we only hire A players. Yeah. Obvious conclusion, don't hire B players, C players, D players. <laughs> You're going to hire a bunch of B players, C players, and D players, and you can interview people till like, you know, the sun implodes. It happens. So I think um, the, the biggest lesson for, for us as a leadership team was, you know, you always have to do the, ah, oh, man, I like... I convinced this person to come here and I like went out and like had dinner with them at their house and, you know, bought them a dog or whatever he did. And he told the board, I got to give them a signing bonus. And what am I going to do with the dog now? And, and you just have to like acknowledge like some of the things, decisions we made are great and some are bad and we have to fix them as soon as they happen. And again, like if you think people are fooled in the company, they're not fooled. Everybody sees it was their, didn't work. That person's probably miserable and you just have to correct those things when they happen. And you can't go around and go on, you know, well, you know, if we were over there, they only had our A players. It's just not true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm curious about what you said about managing to be liked and like more broadly inflection points in management that you've had. Like, was there like a point at which you were like, you managed to be liked and you're like, oh, that didn't work so well. I don't know. There were so many mistakes I made that I would like, mm, that's don't do that again. And I tried to always tell the team, one of the things I tried to do at Twitter was when I made a mistake, get up and talk about it so that people were like, okay, it's okay to make a mistake and acknowledge it. So, I mean, how many times we've all seen this? Someone gets up at an all hands meeting in a company or goes up to the CEO. It's like, that didn't really work. So how do we feel about that? And they're like, well, it kind of worked. And you know, and or, well, it's not true yet. It's not necessarily true that it didn't work yet. Or whatever the question is. We've all seen the, seen the answer that's like everyone in the audience is like spin, you know, I'm being spun. And then nobody wants to go up and tell that person the truth because they're like, they're just going to spin me. So I always tried to, whenever those things happen, and as I said, they happen a ton, tried to get up and go, okay, here's, the, here's, here's what I think I screwed up. Here's the takeaway from that. You know, I think of everything from reorgs that we screwed up where we talked about what the reorg might look like before we really knew what it was. So then you've got people being political and going around jockeying mm -hmm. for position before the thing is written in stone and got in front of the company and like apologize for that and all the misery it created for people. And just tried to, you know, every time I did that, tried to make it clear, like nobody's going to get punished for like screwing something up. The job of leadership is to correct mistakes quickly when they happen. That way people will tell you the truth and truth and not try to sweep things under the rug. Uh, so we're going to try to do two questions. Sure. Uh, we talked about impact. How do you feel about what the Twitter network has gone to do? You know, I mean, I was at Twitter. For me, that was one of the best parts of working there. Do you have a lot of pride in, in seeing that the lessons that we learned being applied throughout the valley of the companies? Yeah, of course. I'm like all the time, too. All these amazing companies, you know, great leaders at companies, great products, new. Um, new investors, the, you know, the six, um, women, uh, six, sorry, six of the women on my leadership team, uh, who built hashtag angels and are now out there as investors. Katie Stanton, Vijagade, um, Jess, really, I'm not going to name all of them because then I'm going to be like, why did you leave me out? I'm number six. <laughs> sure. Um, anyway, um, uh, Chloe, Jan, and April are the other three, by the way. Thank you. Um, uh, but they're, but they're, yeah, they're all, you know, they're, they're, they're those folks. There's, um, you know, Buoyant, um, and the folks doing Linkerd at Buoyant and building that company, a big benchmark company. And, you know, I'm going to, I'll leave out a bunch of them. But Visla, this new uh, machine learning company that's doing radiology. One of my, one of the great machine, machine learning engineers at Twitter is doing this really cool startup called Visla that's 
analyzing these millions of radiology, chest x-rays, and then um, ERs around the world can, when a doctor performs a chest x-ray, they can audit it against Visla and know, hey, there's like 5% chance you might have missed a, you know, enlarged, uh, you know, large heart here or something. That stuff is awesome. And there are tons of those. And that network is also really um, vocal and engaged with each other and helping each other out all the time. And we talk to each other all the time. And, you know, lots of those folks are friends. Um, Envoy is another company. Uh, Larry Gadea is one of my, uh, one of the engineers who was at Twitter already when I got there. I was the CEO of that. So that's great. And I think that's, you know, that's one of my favorite things about it is seeing those people and talking to them and everything they're doing and, and seeing how many new companies have been started from that. Uh, thanks for coming in. This has been amazing. We talked a lot about the management side of things and the business side. I'm curious about in your personal life, like what do you value and what do you prioritize? And if travel seems to be one thing that's a passion. Yep. Um, I always make time for friends of mine. It doesn't matter to me, you know, whether they're still the CEO of, you know, schmucky.com or not. I'll tell you a fascinating story. Uh, so family and friends, I like go out of my way to make time for them a lot and don't care if, you know, all that stuff. I always feel like that always, that stuff always comes back to you. So I remember June 11th, I was just talking to um, Katie Stanton and uh, another woman who worked for me at Twitter. The day I resigned at Twitter, what was amazing to see. So the day I announced I was resigning, I did it in an all-hands meeting to the company. The board knew about it. I told the company. We released this SEC filing at the same time I was talking to the company so that the company was hearing about it from me, not from some filing. That day, you know, I had one of these things at Twitter that could, you know, told me who's following me now, who's unfollowed, not just who's following me, but who's unfollowed me and all this other stuff. That day, you'd be amazed at the people who unfollowed me on Twitter. <laughs> CEOs of noted big companies in the Valley who unfollowed me on Twitter. Amazingly, amazingly, the most sort of, and then a bunch of financial finance people um, unfollowed me. <laughs> amazingly, the most loyal people and the people who like checked in with me and like, hey, let's get dinner were the Hollywood people. And I think it's probably because those people realize like, man, you won the Oscar today and you're like, nope. Not that person, someone that's fatter than that person, you know, and can't get a role the next day or whatever. Um, so they maybe are, are realized like, yeah, you're not born to be sit on that throne and be the king. That's all just ego. You know, one day you're, one day you're great here and the next day you're not. That was like remarkable to me. And I'm like, I never care about, you know, oh, that person can't do anything for me. So I'm not going to spend any time with them. I, that stuff doesn't make any difference to me. Uh, I thought of the answer to your question now. See, just Perfect. give me five minutes. Amazing. The best, my favorite private community that I'm still peripherally attached to and, and, and need, and need to also spend more time on. And I'm going to go down there in a couple of weeks is the writer's room on Silicon Valley, H HBO's show, Silicon Valley. Oh, Those like 10, 13 people, including Mike Judge and Alec Berg, who's the showrunner are like amazing. They're super funny. They have great like objective distance about Silicon Valley. I mean, they think it's hilarious. They come up here and do research, you know, on companies. <laughs> and they think, like, the funniest thing ever is when they ask, you know, any CEO, you know, talk about what you're really trying to do here at whatever. They're like, we're changing the world. <laughs> so as you remember, in season three, there's even an episode where Richard goes to work at this company Middle called Mustache.io. And Mustache.io, and they're drawing virtual mustaches on people. And the CEO says, Richard, we're changing the world, you know? <laughs> This is going to be change the way people see each other. And uh, anyway, that that group is awesome, and they're like they have this great non ego about all the craziness that goes on here. Awesome, it's awesome. Uh, with that, we give you a huge thank you to Dick Hustle for. <laughs> If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. <laughs>